Hello, my lovers, my puppies, my kittens, my schmoopies. Happy New Year. Yay. It's exciting. It's exciting. Why not? Um, it's more of the same. <laughs> and the whole concept of a calendar year, it is what it is. Um, N'empêche que I still want, I still think it's appropriate to wish you all well. Lots of peace, health, wisdom. Yeah, I think we can all use a little wisdom these days, huh? Speaking of wisdom, have you heard of uh, Soho Karen? Yeah, well, if you haven't, here's her story in a nutshell. Uh, her Karenosity is debatable. I say that because she's claiming to be Puerto Rican, therefore she shouldn't be called a Karen. Uh, Karen is not whiteness, necessarily. It's also an attitude, an attitude of entitlement, a refusal to have empathy or see someone else's POV, uh, point of view. We abbreviate everything ad nauseum. I'm exhausted, but I enjoy saying POV. Anyway, so her name is Maya Poncero. On December 26, she was caught on tape attacking uh, in the lobby of the Arlo Hotel in Soho, New York, which is why they're calling her Soho Karen, Keon Harold Jr., who's just 14 years old. Now, he happens to be the son of Grammy Award-winning trumpeteer Keon Harold, I'm going to guess, senior. Uh, ultimately, she accused this kid of uh, stealing her phone. Uh, and 15 minutes later, the Uber driver that she had gotten out of shows up to save the day. Turns out, Miss Thang had left her phone in the Uber. Um, I wonder if the Uber driver even knows he's involved in this fuckery. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. There's, there's nothing funny about it. Because we're talking about a 14-year-old child, a young black male. And... As you know, I am a black woman. My heart breaks. My heart breaks. I felt triggered by that whole incident. And let's face it, the only reason why we know about it and the father, Keon Harold Sr., has a platform, mercifully, is because of who he is. But what about the child of, you know, an average person? I mean, we would never, we wouldn't have heard about this, but it helps that when you have a platform, you use it so that it doesn't happen to other, to others. Um, and this leads me into the, our topic today. In the U.S., Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, also known as BIPOC, uh, face racial trauma. Uh, age is clearly not a factor. I got very uh, interested and my own feelings about it, stumble across the term facial, tra uh, racial trauma, excuse me, racial trauma, and thought I ought to find an expert to explore this with, to unpack this with, to help me understand and help everyone listening uh, understand what that is. Is it a real medical diagnosis? Uh, we don't know. I don't know yet. We'll find out together. But it's real. It's just real. Can you imagine if you're non-BIPOC? How often do you have to think about your safety? 
on a nonstop basis. Yes, as a woman, too, I have this added pleasure of constantly being aware of my surroundings, planning what time I get out of the house, what I'm wearing. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the world we live in. But to have on top of the basic, how do I keep myself safe dilemma on a regular basis, I also have my skin color to be concerned with. So for anyone who doesn't think uh, this is, thinks this is fantasy. I'm here to tell you, no, no, baby, it isn't. It's real. What the fuckery is racial trauma? Well, we're about to find out. I'm Nadege August, your host. If this is your first time, welcome, bienvenue, bienvenido. And I promise I'm going to learn how to say this in other languages. And if you are from Haiti, I want to say sac passe. Shout out to my Haitian peoples. Um, if this is your first time, uh, hit that follow and subscribe button and you will be an automatic schmoopy. And um, here's what you can expect. What the fuckery? is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know enough about. A series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle truths concepts we struggle with understanding. The very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss. Basically, all sorts of non-normative stuff. And if you've been with me uh, for a while, you know, like, you know, my topics are usually like, what is that? Uh, what's a so-so bros? What is microaggression? One of my favorite episodes to date, by the way. Oh, so our guest, uh, before I even introduce him or tell you about him, who the, he is, it's like a full circle moment. Uh, when I released that episode on microaggression uh, sometime last year, so many people in the podcast community reached out to me to congratulate me. Uh, via social media. And one particular podcast called, oh my gosh, what do we do with it? Or, oh my God, I'm embarrassed. Okay. I think it's what do we do with something, what we do with it. Uh, their producer reached out to me and said, that was a stroke of genius. We want to do the same thing. Their specialties on PhD academia. So they also had people send in their stories of microaggression and 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 um, in academia, and they had their expert on to analyze the situation and break it down, much like I did with the microaggression episode. And they also invited me to read, pretend that I was one of the uh, submitters. Someone, a couple of people, I guess, were embarrassed to use their own voice or they wanted to be in hiding. So as an actor. I was happy to lend that podcast my uh, acting skills. And apparently the lovely person who I pretended to be sent me a lovely note saying that I really captured the anger in her voice and her frustration and her experiences. So thank you, dear person. Well, full circle moment, their expert is 
here today with us to discuss racial trauma. His name is Dr. Broderick Sawyer. Dr. Broderick Sawyer is a psychologist, an activist, a diversity consultant, workshop facilitator, meditation teacher, and author with a specific focus on healing racial trauma and the healing effects of mindfulness and compassion-based intervention. In my opinion, he is a renaissance man only because there's something about a man who takes time to meditate self-care who seems to have a what i'm what i found out a spiritual uh, grounding a base so for my non-bipac listeners um please listen uh it's not an attack on you and it's about just you being aware and hopefully developing empathy and compassion and just hearing what it's like to be in another's shoe. Dr. Broderick Sawyer, uh, welcome. Yes, thanks for having me. I was expecting for you to say thank you, so that's why I paused. Yes, well, there we go. That's good. We need to pause for manners. Hey, listen, you're called doctor. I'm assuming you have manners. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I still, I don't feel like a doctor. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's very weird. I'm supposed to have manners, supposed to be this, this regality to me. It's, it's not there. It's, it's not yet. We're working on it. Perhaps uh, what's in a name might help. Do you prefer to be called Dr. Sawyer, Dr. Broderick, Dr. B, Dr. S? Ooh, uh, variety is fine. Whatever is in the moment, I don't have preferences. I still go by Broderick a lot of the time. Dr. B, a lot of folks like Dr. B. I think I'm going to call you Dr. Bro. There we go. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one before. Broderick, B-R-O, you know. Bro, there we go. Yeah, yeah, enough monkeying around. Yeah. What the fuckery is racial trauma? Mm, So what is it? Um, So when we think about oppression and discrimination in any way shape or form there's sort of this this othering this you are bad or less than because of what you look like right so the psychological effects of that i think are are twofold um so when someone you know i'll just use my my specialties in racial trauma in african americans specifically So uh, African-Americans in this country have learned through the lineage of slavery less than, right? Less than, less than, less than. And then because of that vision of white supremacy uh, really forcing us into that space of less than for many, many years. uh, Can I interrupt you quickly? Can you clarify what do you mean by less than? Yes. Um, Viewing... um, African-Americans as uh, two-thirds of a man, as as they would call it. Um, So a lot of those attitudes uh, have been reinforced throughout throughout 400 years of slavery, right? Then we just look at timeline, and 400 years hasn't passed yet. So what that means is slavery has been been going on for much longer than it hadn't been. So um, being the extension of white people, you know, African Africans in this country. Um, so now a lot of those dynamics are still reinforced present day. So what that means is uh, if you interact with someone for a very long time in one way, 
then even when you're trying to not interact in that way, unconsciously that will still happen. So we see behaviors such as uh, my, we call microaggressions, right? And different things like that. These are reflections of unconscious behavioral patterns that are being played out in the present day based on past dynamics. So racial trauma are the, uh, is, is essentially the, uh, the psychological uh, effect of that on the recipient of that treatment. And when I say treatment, it's not just like a person to a person, like a white boss and a black coworker or, you know, a black college student and a white college student. Um, those are sort of the day-to-day one-on-one interactions, but at all times, large institutions are interacting with black people, right? So the things that a black person might have to worry about or think about are institutionally um, uh, reinforced uh, by different laws and practices and policies. And then who are the people who are making these laws and practices and policies and then reinforcing them? Um, Large in part, they are more white people who are unconsciously uh, acting off of their uh, racist white supremacist conditioning which is related to the lineage of slavery. Um, And white supremacy is really indigenous to America. Um, And when we put it like that, then we can see the position uh, that minorities and people of color are put into this country. Um, And in particular, when we talk about African-Americans, that lineage of slavery, the trauma piece is really highlighted because when trauma happens, you lose your sense of identity. When you're being chronically abused or anything like that, you sort of forget who you are and you're just trying to survive and you go into survival mode. So racial trauma uh, is essentially that it's a survival mode. And the difference between uh, like a post-traumatic stress disorder, I like to talk about. So post-traumatic stress disorder, say someone does a tour in Iraq and they come back and they have PTSD. Um, then they see something on the side of the road and they like their fight, flight, freeze response sort of comes up, like they become activated, they might go into a panic, right? That that bag or thing on the side of the road that they're reacting to it, when they're home and not in Iraq, they there's a part of them that knows that that's not an actual threat. And so all that they're left with is how do I deal with and heal from my trauma now that I'm in a safe situation? So that's traditional trauma racial trauma, I see that white person looking at me in an ambiguous way, right? Oh, oh, that's not real. The No, with racial trauma, it's still going on. So the, the challenge with that is how do I live joyfully celebrating my blackness in an anti-black society? That's, that's very tricky. And that's, that's really the difference. Um, so the actual, uh, symptoms, we might say, of racial trauma. Um, we might talk about a basic restlessness. So just feeling on edge, not being able to slow down, um, you know, re- really related to fears of what uh, what white people might think of me, like at my job, if I work in a place with predominantly white folks, um, it might be um, as, as far as um, uh, more just survival-based things. So if I am 
um, you know, if I'm out uh, out in the streets or, or wherever I am, it's fearing police, fearing that I'll be I'll be beaten, or even just different things such as food insecurity in a predominantly black neighborhood where economically um, you are being beaten down by American systems. So that food insecurity may be seen um, as a form of racial trauma. Okay, so. Yeah. I- as I'm listening to you, I'm trying I too am processing and learning. So uh, the example you gave of PTSD, mm-hmm. so that bag on the side of the road to use your your example, uh, is the trigger for that person, right? Mm-hmm. So how would you say with racial trauma, it's uh, it's it's genetic, it's in the DNA, it's a muscle, it's a DNA, uh, a memory that's with the DNA, or is it just a that people are triggered by it does it does my question make sense mm-hmm. uh, yeah i believe so um so uh as far as what triggers it is a sort of realistic basic safety response right so if i am a, a black person in an anti-black society that means that everyone in society is sort of reinforcing this idea that white is better and all of our institutions are reinforcing that. Okay, so, so is that where the systemic mm-hmm. racism comes in? Like the yep. way we are set up, our industries are set up. Okay. Yep, okay. yep. It's uh, yeah. There you go. So it's almost like the the water that we're swimming in is impacting the fish, right? So it were so it's a lot of people talk about institutional racism and individual racism as different. I see them as the same. Um, so individuals are setting up these laws, keeping them the same, not checking their own bias, making these laws that then put uh, racial minorities in these situations where they have to fear for their lives or they may encounter microaggressions and they may, you know, try to challenge, say, a, a boss or a coworker and say, hey, you know, when you said X, Y, Z or when you touched my hair without me asking mm-hmm. different things like that. Um, then we're met with defensiveness, denial, um, just different things like that. And that made me feel like, wait, am I overreacting? Am I now I'm not sure who can I, who can I trust? And then we sort of have this low level paranoia. And then after a while, what that turns into, you know, once we say, well, yes, this person tries to touch my hair like all the time. And then we start to feel this anger. We're like, hold on a second then anger is also a part of racial trauma. But the difficulty with that is that the anger doesn't really have anywhere to go because if I express anger at my boss as a black person, um, right? Like we have this, uh, my dad used to tell storm. me this. Oh yeah. For, first, uh, a shit yeah. But, but, but here's, here's what I need. I'd like for you to help, uh, help me understand mm-hmm. is it's a new, I don't want to say it's a new term. It was, it's mm-hmm. obviously a problem. It's there. It exists. I'm not denying its existence. Mm-hmm. What I am trying to understand, is it a, um, what is that called? A, a medically, Yes. Uh-huh. it's a medical diagnosis. Uh-huh. So this is where, this is a big topic of debate in the field yeah. of racial trauma. And, and I, I'm glad you're, you're sort of hearing the issue here. Um, so is it a medical issue? Yeah. So, like, can I come to you and as my therapist, you can go, all right, diagnosis, racial trauma. Yeah. Um, so that diagnosis in the diagnostic manual does not yet exist. However, that is the next sort of uh, iteration um, that folks are talking about in the manual. 
Um, however, when someone comes in for and they say, like, hey, I'm really stressed out because of my race and da 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 da, what we might say is, you know, anxiety due to uh, a type of stressor or whatnot. So we don't exactly call it that. Um, and I think the issue here is that if we call racial trauma uh, a medical diagnosis, diagnosis, something that is abnormal, right? So having racial trauma and being afraid for my life as a black man and taking extra precaution to not be killed by police, that paranoia, that's not pathological, that I should be doing those things, right? Well, so then it, uh, sadly, you shouldn't have to, but our, our, the way our system set up, yeah. you're having to. I just yeah. want to be clear um, audience that that's what he means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that is, that is the issue. Um, it, it's not, it's, it's a normal response to a pathological, uh, society. You see what I'm saying? So that's where the issue is coming up for a lot of thinkers and researchers is that this isn't exactly the same thing, but we have to also find a way to treat it effectively and ethically, you know? How, how did you come to have this be? Was this what your thesis was on? When, or, or how did this even come about as a, because it's honorable, obviously, it's needed. People like you are needed, who do what you do are needed. But how did you even stumble upon that? Yeah, it was really, it has so much to do with my relationship with my dad. Um, so he, um, being a, a black man in a really white uh, fire department. Where? Um, uh, in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. It's very white there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I, and I, and just so much, um, so, so much, uh, just generationally, uh, within that department. So in the seventies, they were handing out, um, uh, membership forms to join the Ku Klux Klan in that, in that particular department. So we have uh, this lineage of, of just outright racism and growing up, I was watching my dad battle a lot of the racist incidents going on. And for him, um, he was the only one of the only uh, black people in the department who actually were like, no, this is messed up, you know, and I'm going I'm going to get mine. Essentially, I'm going to get those promotions. I'm going to have the same opportunities and all that. And I came to learn um, that it wasn't just about fighting systems. Fighting systems takes a, a, an absurd toll on your mental health. Um, and so for him, um, there's, there's that paranoia that always thinking, you know, well, what are they going to do next? Or I have to, you know, do this or I have to do that. There was a lot of anger for him. There was a lot of, uh, I feel sadness. He didn't have the ability to process and experience and just that pressure of racism, um, really causing a sort of swelling of emotion then led to things like substance use for him and substance use issues and just other mental health issues that he had. Um, and I came to understand that, Hey, Hey, as <laughs> me talking to me, mm -hmm. Hey Broderick, like this is racism is a bigger part of this than you're really coming to understand. And you can see how every time he would get to a space, he would always be questioned, um, bosses micromanaging him, just different things like that. Do you, um, Roderick, do you remember, oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Bro, do you remember any um, anecdotes or any stories your father would come home and share? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so this one in, in particular, maybe the most egregious 
Um, so he had a, uh, he was up for a promotion um, against a, a, a white uh, colleague of his. And this white colleague, um, in terms of just expertise and skill, just grossly unprepared for the position uh, that they were up for in fire marshal. Um, so they were competing. And my dad, um, his perspective was always, if you want a job, then you work hard for it. Because as a black man, people aren't going to give anything to you. You just need to be very, very skilled. Undeniable. Undeniable. Yeah, there it is. That's exactly. Undeniable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that way, he put in that work and prepared himself and instilled a lot of the same stuff in me. It was just like, well, just, you know, don't question your skill set. So then they're up, um, you know, he, uh, I think he got a 70 or something on, on the test. Um, and then the other, the other guy got uh, like a, you know, like a 58 or something like that. So it was pretty clear. Then they have the oral exam. The oral exam, highly subjective. Uh, the people who are interviewing you um, are all, all white. Um, so and then that way, here's my father who knows the fire code book, like the back of his hand um, really, really well. And uh, after that uh, iteration of interviews, what then happened was they gave um, they gave the white guy uh, just enough points on the oral exam to overtake my dad and get that position. And that really, I think, changed changed my dad. That that really settled him into the hopelessness. And that's when he stopped looking to the department to play fair. And he started to seek outside organizations that protected black people um, from issues like this. Um, mm-hmm. And they called themselves the uh, the Connecticut Firebirds, an all-black all um, organization of, of black um, firefighters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is Ooh. that organization still around? Uh, yes, I, I believe so. I believe they're, they're still around. Yeah. So um, as, a, as a young man, child, were you, uh, by the way, are you, uh, please let me know if I'm asking too many personal questions. Oh, are you the only child? Mm-hmm. I have two younger sisters. Oh, okay. So you're the oldest. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So you probably have uh, more uh, vivid memories of, of this whole situation. Plus, you probably connected to your dad from yeah. man to man, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how was his demeanor when he came home? Yeah. I mean, you know, I can't imagine. It's like that tea kettle, right? The water's boiling, boiling. Eventually it explodes. And, yeah. you know, that old, you go home and kick the dog and beat your wife. I mean, I'm not saying that's what happens, but d- did you see like, oh, dad had a rough day today? Yeah, it was more of um, it was it was energy. And this is where it's odd because it's uh, talking about this now. It all really connects to the way that I think about racial trauma and how to heal. But with him, what I saw um was more gas in the tank. So rather than sort of taking that energy and really spewing it everywhere, um, there were certainly moments like that. Um, But large in part, he would sit down at his desk and he would put in the work, you know? So for him, he always stayed so focused on winning these battles. So even when he would even when he wouldn't get promotions, different things like that, there was always something that he was, he was trying to like fight against. 
Um, and, you know, whether it's repealing things or working with outside organizations or whatever, um, each time something like that happened, um, he would come back with more energy. So it was almost like, oh, yeah, you're going to try to beat me? Like, well, it's not overnight. And he just has this fire motor and he's still going he's like he can choose to retire if he wants at this point but he's like nope you know i just want revenge son and i'm like well i don't know about all that but i commend his end it just doesn't it's fire you know did he get his re his due date his revenge did he see his yeah i mean where he was hoping to get yeah so i'll tell you this is a this is a this was the second half of the um the firebirds anecdote He's with a, um, a the uh, fire department chief and the fire marshal at the time, the guy who um, who got the shot job over and when he shouldn't have. And my dad was essentially um, reading out of the code book and a better uh, fire marshal than the actual fire marshal. So my dad would be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to take that order because that doesn't make sense. Um, numerous times. And then they have a sit down with fire marshal and, and the chief. And they're like, uh, Inspector Sawyer, we, you know, we need you to follow the chain of command and da, 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 da. And my dad's just like, well, this dude basically doesn't know what he's talking about and da, 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 da. And then the uh, fire chief goes, well, you need to, you know, follow him and da, da, da. And my dad goes, oh, yes, a massa. I'll do it right away, boss. Like in that exact <laughs> the the boldness, but that sort of switch the hierarchy i feel because then they were like yo this black dude is not afraid and he's undeniably talented and at that point that's when he went public with the issues of discrimination and i think that also that public pressure ended up getting that chief fired and then eventually my dad got that um fire marshal position wow um, yeah so he's been just holding it down you know yeah. how to fight one-on-one yeah, he got some pearls out of the swine. Amazing. So he inspired you to go into this field, or so how did it all start? You yeah. go to college, you're like majoring in what? Yeah, so I was in in psychology, um, but really to me it was the curiosity about racial differences and how. We experience just symptoms of anxiety or depression. So it started just about difference, right? And so then when I went to uh, my PhD program, it was still very much about that difference. These are interesting. We need to make sure that uh, systems of mental health also understand these differences. That's what it was all about. But then as I started to, and this is now in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so then as I started to experience discrimination as one of the only black people in my uh, department of my program, I started to see that white systems caused me to pretend like I was someone else. Like I had to act white to get respect. And that question really rattled around in my brain for a while. So whether it was me working with a black client and a white supervisor saying, saying things like, oh, you should probably diagnose them with something that's more intense than needs to be. And then me as a black person, I'm like, well, no, this young black man who I'm treating, he's acting cocky and narcissistic because that's kind of, you know, culturally, when we speak to swagger, that's kind of what he's doing. His relationships are intact. He's able to go to school and do what he has to do. Um, but culturally, that's the way. So then I'm realizing this, the people who are telling 
black people, what is mentally healthy versus not, do not look like them. And for myself, I started to engage myself uh, with activism in the West End of Louisville and um, predominantly uh, black, uh, black neighborhood. Um, and all these activists we're seeing um, front, front and center with all the Breonna Taylor stuff. Um, the, these are the people. And what I learned just interacting with them, because typically what happens is as a mental health professional or any sort of health professional coming from a white system, um, you go into these communities and they don't trust you off the bat. They don't trust you. Um, we just look at how white systems and healthcare has, um, you know, just a lot of institutional racism. So I had to learn just philosophically, where do these folks stand? What speaks to them? And also what would solve the problem of uh, just generational trauma, you know, just, um, you know, the, the destiny of black people in the United States. And the more I started to do that work and be in grad school at the same time, I started to be able to put together philosophies of uh, liberation and mental health. So I really based this in my understanding of Malcolm X. And I remember reading rereading Malcolm X's uh, autobiography as an adult right before I started crafting my dissertation. Um, and I noticed that for Malcolm, two things happened. Um, one, he was mindful of the history of race dynamics and what it takes to um, really uh, feel safe um, as a people. And then I also saw self-love, you know, this radical understanding that I don't need validation from white people to love myself. You know, I can get that from myself. I can get that from my community. And that then really uh, launched me into understanding and healing racial trauma in a real way is understanding, okay, what are community members feeling? How do they think? Why does that make more sense than what the field of psychology is doing? Um, and other, and other sort of, um, I would say white institutions trying to solve, solve racism. Um, they're not talking to the people. And my dad was just one of, one of those people. When I saw him, he was just, he had dignity and pride. And you opened the doors for quite a few. I'm sure that department has been forever changed thanks to him. Yeah. Yeah. He's still with us? Yep. He's still, he's still with us. He's, Yeah. Yeah, he's he's still kicking. Yeah. Maybe I should have him on. Yeah, I mean, he you should. I mean, he would do it too. He would he would like it. <laughs> he would love that, huh? How, yeah. how one man changed an institution. Your your mission statement, I think, is it's just so um, impactful when I read it, and I'm going to share it again uh, with the audience. Your overall mission is to improve the psychological health of the black community by ensuring that methods of healing meet the unique needs of the black community. So how does one go about healing this racial trauma and mm. can it be healed? Is it an individual thing? Is it a case by case basis? Mm -hmm. We need to take up arms. Yeah. yeah. Like they did at the Capitol yesterday. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. See, that's I, triggering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any iota of racial trauma I have in my system was a little triggered yesterday. Honestly, um, even though it had, it reminded me of 9-11, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And while we can't say this was a direct attack on black folks, mm-hmm. we do know that their beef is with a, the the fear that Biden hire, uh, Harris is 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 what it represents. It represents yeah. the old world order. Yep. It's what yep. used to be. Whew, I'm going to sound so I'm sure. I mean, listen, if I lose people, I lose people. But that old white male and pale dude has got to go mm-hmm. and he's going, but yeah. he's fighting it. He's not going to walk away. But that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's, let's stick to the topic at hand, which has to do with racial trauma. Dr. Broderick, how do we heal racial trauma? Yeah. How do you try to do it? Yeah. So this is, um, I, I think there are, there are, there are theories, but I would say not complete. Usually we talk about, you know, band-aiding certain things and band-aids are important, you know, to cope with the systems uh, or the symptoms. Um, but I'm, uh, seeking to fingers crossed. I still haven't mentioned it yet, but I'll, I'll mention it with a, with a knock on wood. Um, but I'm hopefully I'll have a book deal in place, um, soon to unpack and name this. Um, but within that space, what, um, what I talk about, um, is first being able to feel safe as a black person in your body on command. Right. So this also depends on just like you're saying it's a case by case so it also depends on the availability of safe spaces if i'm you know uh south side of chicago you know living you know living in the hood right like it's harder to find that that safe space right so it might depend on where can i find that and when right what does then, a safe space look like dr broderick what um, is yeah so a safe space looks like somewhere where i can sit and breathe and really let my guard down as a person in any in any situation this is like moment moment to moment right so it's not just, okay, well, this person lives in this environment, so they'll never feel safe. They just want to use their awareness. And this is where we talk about mindfulness, sort of auditing one's life and being able to pay attention each moment throughout your day and thinking, when do I feel good? And when do I feel bad? Okay. And then what in my environment is making me feel good or bad in that moment? And then as I take tabs on those things, then I start to make edits, right? Uh, So for instance, um, I had to learn not to talk about emotions with my dad. So if I was feeling sad or upset, he's not, he's going to, he's going to try to problem solve. He's going to tell you, get over it. He's, he's a baby boomer, black man. He's not going to give you those validating responses. doesn't mean him he's bad, but I had to pay attention, see what I was doing and how that was making me feel. And then I had to change the way I related to that situation. So when it comes to racial trauma, Um, We want to think about, um, I would say many people are in this situation where uh, they work in professional environments and they have to code switch, aka pretend to be a white person in a white world. So what I see oftentimes with this is that people forget that they're wearing a white person mask. They forget that. They forget that white people are more likely to see other white people as capable. 
So then when you forget those things, then you as a black person in a white environment in anti-black society, you're looking to, uh, to white supremacist norms to tell you that you're good enough. So if I look to my white boss, Keith, to, te- you know, to get, if I get that promotion, now I'm good enough, I'm setting myself up for failure by expecting validation from a white system. So what we want to do, because we can't always be in all black environments or super validating environments, sometimes we just need checks. Right? Yeah, not impossible, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. We need to, we still need to go to school. Like that's stuff's going to happen in school when, you know what I mean? So, so what we want to learn to do is number one, understand that you live in an anti-black society, accept it and understand it. Because if I do not accept that every time it happens, I'm going to get upset because I'm looking, I'm looking to a world to be a certain way that it's not. Okay. So it's almost like if you want to solve a problem, first you have to accept that all of the, if you want to solve a math problem, you have to accept that all of the numbers are on the page. You can't do anything with it, right? So that's where looking at it and acknowledging that is important. Step one, just being in reality. What's my situation? Step two, where in my situation do I have flexibility, okay, to get the validation that I need? So what I learn in my own path and what I tell different clients or students or whatever I'm saying, um, I say you have to find that space where you can be 100% yourself, where you can take that mask off and feel like you can, number one, feel safe, and then also feel free to be as black as you want to, completely 100% authentic. Whatever that means. Whatever that means to you. you yeah, know, it's whatever. in a case-by-case basis. You know? Exactly. There's a lot of us who are... Yeah who are labeled as African-American come from other countries. That too. Yep. Right. Right. It has its own set of fuckery, by the way. Yeah. Attest to that. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's so culturally driven, but you look at like, um, you know, I think especially for African-Americans, you know, we don't have our quote unquote Chinatown. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you go to these spaces, right. It's very, it's so culturally validating if you come, you know, if you come in as an immigrant from China and you go into Chinatown, you're like, I'm okay, I can do this. This is, here's my identity. And for black folks, we're still figuring out we need those spaces yeah. because the balance is how do I pretend to be a white person during the day and then come home and sort of take that off? First thing you got to know is that you have a mask on in the first place, you know, and really find yourself. So in this way, um, and in the book, what I unpack is really uh, self-realization. Mm-hmm. Who am I apart from societal norms, what society projects on me? Who am I aside from that? And building space to explore that. I found that through meditation, mindfulness, spiritual engagement. I would just sit, and then after a while, I started to be. And when, when I sort of use the, uh, the example of, you know, you look at a flower, a flower is not trying to be a flower. It is. Mm-hmm. You don't have to try to be yourself. You just are. Before African-Americans, we have to try to be white, mute our blackness to stay safe, to not get fired, to like not you get- have a job. 
to yeah. hold a job, to be okay, to be accepted. Yeah. Yep. You know, I have to say there was a time when we heard, when you heard, oh, you're not like the rest of them mm-hmm. to the recipient of that comment. It mm-hmm. was almost, va- it was validating, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's quite insulting. It is. It is. You get like the the white validation. Yeah. Then what are you saying about my people and me? Rest of them. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know when you when you were talking when we were talking about spaces like here in um, Los Angeles we have uh, Little Ethiopia for for as a place that someone from Eritrea can go and be around. it, in the East Coast, we have all the Caribbean communities we can go to. But you're right, African Americans, those who really are the direct descendants of slaves here in the United States, there isn't such a town. Um, there was one that was burnt down. But, yeah. but uh, what we have, the resilience, though, it are barber shops. Mm-hmm. hair salons mm-hmm. and those restaurants. Those are the only place I can think of when I'm like, that's probably where you can go and just mm-hmm. sort of let loose just enough. Take yeah. that mask off. Right. Yeah. And it's and what did, uh, you know, one of the, the greatest race thinkers of all time in, in Malcolm X, his, uh, you know, end of the line sort of analysis was we need land. We need space. And we still see, to your point, this lack of space. And that really drove a big part of my question is, what, what about emotional space? Mm. Is that the equivalent? Can you feel that relief? And sort of testing out, <laughs> testing out these interventions on myself, um, teaching it to other people. Um, you start to see that there's more breathing room when we practice trying to just settle down and relax and be. Then when we're in that space of being, of relaxation, of safety, then we can start to see, okay, this is what what feeling is to me. Because if we don't feel safe, we can't really feel what we feel. So once we feel safe and we feel what we feel, then we know this makes me feel good. This makes me feel bad. So then we can actually start to plan out our lives in ways that increase those positive feelings. So it it's as subtle as shifting around, you know, this meeting with this microaggressive person to the end of the day instead of the beginning, because that usually sets me off. I don't have a choice to meet with them, to meet or not meet with them. But here, I'll move that here so that I can make sure that I do my coping practices right after that meeting. I don't have to jump to the next one. So all of these subtleties come up when we start to just relax, we can feel, we can tune into that spirit, tune into that soul and start to build a life that reflects our values, not white supremacist, anti-black, stay safe values, but liberated, joyful Wakandan values, you know, dignified values, you know, where is that for us? And really it, it comes from within. There's a very intuitive wisdom that comes with. Do you know, Dr. Bro, you are, um, I, I, I find you so fascinating because you are a bit of a renaissance, renaissance man or person mm-hmm. because here you, you meditate, you are a facilitator for meditation groups as well. You do quite a, a lot in the space of well-being. Mm-hmm. When I'm hearing you describe being the flower, just mm-hmm. being you, mm-hmm. I can't help but think about these are a lot of the spiritual teachings mm-hmm. that have been 
that have been around forever. You know, some call it new thought, but it's actually old thought. Oh, yeah. Very old. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I can't help but wonder this application of just being who you truly are. If everyone, no matter the shade of this shell of yours, whether it be white, black, gray, green, yellow, whatever, Mm. if you can just tap into that inner light, that inner person, that Mm. truth of who you are, Mm -hmm. we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. No, no. And any... And uh, and I love that you you point to that because that's really where the bulk of the of my uh, idea about intervention comes from. It's it's stuff that I read um, from ancient ancient philosophy. So it started with Buddhist philosophy, moved into a bit of a Hinduism, Taoism. Then it came to specific gurus who would Indian gurus who would prescribe certain things. And uh, one of the um, the core um, philosophies of of one. Um, what she says is um, all sorrow in the world is due to the fact that many are seen when there is only one. Hmm. And that tapping into that, that energy, like that inner self, that inner awareness uh, looks out into the world and only sees itself. So if there are no others, when I give, I'm giving to myself. And that is very difficult. Um, and this is where the Buddhist philosophy really helped me. Well, why can't we just automatically see that, you know? Um, so this, so consciousness is trying to essentially maintain its individuality to keep its own body safe, which makes sense. So if we can never feel safe, and sort of relax that mechanism that's trying to defend itself, then we can't see that truth from within. Hey, listeners, the term self-care is thrown around a lot these days, and deservedly so. And I think we can all agree that mental health is part of self-care. And one of the many reasons we tell ourselves is lack of time and money. Well, BetterHelp.com is the world's largest counseling service. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. Now, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapist in under 24 hours. Therapy from the comfort of your own space. What could be better than that? You can schedule weekly video sessions or phone sessions with your own personal counselor. You can log into your account at any time from anywhere to send a message to your counselor. And BetterHelp makes it easy and free to change your counselor if you ever needed to. Um, It's very affordable. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And financial aid is available. So get started today. And you, as a What the Fockery listener, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash fockery10. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash fockery10. In fact, use fockery10 as a promo code and discount code anytime and anywhere you um, use our sponsors. Okay, back to our program. So trauma is almost as if you're in a constant state of of flight or fight. Aren't can you? be, can be. It can yeah. be, and people don't see it a lot that way 
because it's it's a spectrum. So people think of trauma as like, oh, this like outlandish anger, outlandish like fear. But it's really in these lower, subtle, subtler levels that get in the way of us living a joyful life, you know, uh, being able to love ourselves, being able to really love others and be vulnerable and authentic. These, you know, this low level restlessness that capitalism doesn't us allow us enough time to actually settle down and see and heal. So capitalism speeds us up. So we avoid our emotions, right? And that's, yeah. That's been the biggest lesson of this pandemic, I think. It's forced so many to just sit your hind down. Stop. Breathe. You have nowhere to go right now. So you're yep. just going to have to face a wall and face your music. Yeah. Face, face your relationships. What are my relationships really? What is my career really? Who am I? You know, at every, at every level. Um, even for myself, that's what, that's what happened. Um, and I think it's reflection in that space can be so good. Um, but you know, it doesn't take a pandemic. It's, it's also just sitting with what is learning how to see reality, um, not for your expectations or what you wish it would be, but just as it is, then we can start to actually, uh, catch some traction on the road because we're on the road. We're not trying to catch traction in things that aren't in reality, but um, pain, mm-hmm. pain causes us to wish things were different. And that's where we have to learn compassion, a lot of self-compassion as well. And that's kind of where, where I, I ended my analysis of why can't things be different? Why can't things be different? It's like, why am I wishing things would be different? Oh, because you want to cry. Oh no. Okay, here we go. And then it throws you into your heart. It throws you into that space. Um, there's a lot of open space. And once we open up uh, to it, um, a lot of societal conditioning, um, especially as a man, you know, like, don't cry, be tough, you know, all these different things. But once you just sit with your own heart, um, there's an intuitive wisdom that's there really, um, to your point, for for everyone. We all have the same hardware and the same abilities um, that ancient, ancient wisdom you know, it's it's still there. It's still it's true. Still there, and it's still very valid. It's interesting hearing you uh, as you were sharing what your self talk was. One of the topics I want to explore on a podcast episode is iliism. It's the idea of like therapeutically healing yourself through talking to yourself as in the third person. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. you did that, and it does help. I think. Um, are 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 there other racial groups who we can who can we can say suffer from racial trauma as well. Ooh, absolutely. Um, what are uh, they here in, this, yeah, in the United States? Yeah, a- absolutely. Native Americans. Um, a- absolutely. Um, and then in, you know, in, in other ways, it's, it goes all the way up the chain. You know, so we speak about African-Americans, Native Americans um, as the sort of the, the um, you know, the, the ones um, who've had the most tumultuous history in the U.S. But then you also speak to uh, any immigrant population. Any immigrant population um, can can suffer from that. Um, you know, and then moving, sort of moving up the, the ladder of, of stigma. Um, so my, my partner, it's funny you mentioned uh, Ethiopian community. My partner, she is, uh, she's Ethiopian. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the interesting piece culturally is that that sense of dignity 
you know, and pride in a culture is so intact, which is so protective against racism. But even for her, still she'll encounter it and see it and have to, you know, reconcile with that, you know? Um, so we can I'm sorry, reconcile with what? Um, just discrimination. Yep, the discrimination is real, that it's happening to me. I have to navigate that. But I'm so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you being so mean? <laughs> Why? Why? Yeah, what yeah, that? yeah. What the hell? Oh, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, that whole incident, uh, the woman that was caught 22 years old at a hotel in New York, attacking a 14-year-old African-American boy, mm-hmm. accusing him of stealing her phone. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to... Uber driver runs back to give her her phone she'd left in the car. You're yeah. familiar with that story. Yep. Mm-hmm. So my concern is for the well-being of this 14-year-old. I mean, this is not only probably his first real encounter with racism and the mm-hmm. ugliness of it all, mm-hmm. but to have physical scars that he's going to carry with himself. And I'm sure, luckily, it sounds like his father has the the means to get him the help that he needs. Mm -hmm. But if this child was handed to you Mm -hmm. for help, how would you, how do you go about talking to to this young man? No, the first the first thing to do is understand how he's seeing the situation. What does he understand, right? Um, And how does he think about these things? And then as we understand what he, the way he he sees it, however it is he sees it, um, it's encouraging to him to look at reality directly, you know, as it is. There's racism in this country and I can at any point be victimized because of it, right? And then that cold, hard truth, when we face cold, hard truth, the anxiety, the fear in the moment, the restlessness or the anger, it's just sort of there and it's, and it's heavy and we can grieve now. We can grieve the fact that you as a, as a black teenage, teenage boy could have this happen to you and other teenage black boys and girls can have this happen to them. And then when we lean into uh, the reality, that reality, we can start to see our emotions not as things to be feared, but as things to use uh, to make life better for ourselves and make life better for other Black people. So fear can be turned into focus, right? Anger, rage can be turned into action and passion. Grief, sadness can remind us of the love we have for ourselves. That's why we're sad for ourselves. That's why we're sad for our community because we love our community. And when and we can see this um, very clear, uh, you know, um, clearly as far as, uh, you know, when Chadwick Bozeman passed, um, we saw how there was this outpouring of love and affection and every black person was just hurt. And that reminds us how connected we are at the heart. Um, so really, you know, working with uh, racial trauma, it's it's one part, sure, it's seeing reality clearly, it's all that stuff, but then it's just learning how do I continue to experience these intense emotions of fear, anger, sadness, and then instead of becoming buried by those emotions, using them as fuel, 
using that stuff. I'm not going to stop getting it, but how do I then use that to achieve my goals? And that would sort of be uh, the ongoing conversation with this young teen is, hey man, what do you want to do? You know, how do you want to live your life and how do you use your life experiences uh, to bring a sense of beauty and enrichment to whatever it is that that you're doing? Um, so yeah, that that would be the the basic approach, you know, along with some uh, basic safety breathing techniques and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I my heart aches for 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 that whole situation, and um, yeah. I think the father is handling it as best as he can. He's using his platform. He's a known jazz musician, I think. His name mm-hmm. escapes me, Kajon. I forget. Um, but yeah, I'm just glad that from this conversation, what I'm getting is that we are not looking to them to change it'd be nice if they did it'd be nice but feel free right but we have to deal with what is and the fact is we can't change them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a shame but we can't change that um but yeah as a kid i i I can't imagine what that must have felt like the physical assault of getting accused of something you had no idea you know you weren't i this is crazy talk about it's not even wrong place wrong time she would have done this to anyone Anyone. who was black it didn't bunch of people coming in and out why him why him yeah and that's and that's it it's it's just so it's so ingrained and i and i talk about um racial trauma at times um is also inside of white people in a different way so for white people there has to be a great sense of shame you know related to what your ancestors did in terms well, of you're shame. assuming yeah they well, are yeah. that self-aware some are some are, some are. but yeah yeah, I don't think yeah. the people who stormed the Capitol yesterday had any shame about that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that's that's the thing. It's it's also dealing with unconsciousness, unconscious emotions. So uh, so feeling so bad about something that you're going to pretend that it's the other way, you know. So that that's another more extreme form, um, which really complicates things. But just like you're saying, like let's not worry about what they're doing. When you're in a fight with someone. You can't really hit them until you cover your own face. So you need, we need to learn as a community how to take care of our own. That's why I love the Black Panther movement, you know, different. It was how do we feed each other, lift each other up. Empowering. Empowering. And then we'll get out and we'll protest. That's sort of the balance between, um, you know, the old Martin and Malcolm argument, you know, that that's, you got to do both. You got to change systems, but you first have to protect yourself, you know, and learn how to love yourself, you know? Yeah. It's that self-hatred that was taught that, that has kept us so divided. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it led to colorism and it's, that's a whole other shit story. Yeah. Right, right, right. If you know any experts, I would love to talk to someone who can come explain to the folks what that is. And perhaps there's some trauma there that can be healed. Yeah. 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 Well, I am so incredibly grateful for your presence, um, Dr. Bro. Um, I don't like that you refer to yourself as an aspiring author. I think you are an author, and it's a matter of just getting published. And um, I, I, I wish you well. I thank you for what you do. I will make all of your information available in your show notes. Um, so you work in a therapeutic setting, right? Uh, Yep. So right now, um, what I'm doing is I'm starting a racial trauma clinic. 
Um, Where? We'll, uh, this will be um, for so right now it's virtual, um, but it's in New York State. And what we're hoping to do in the next year or so is open up um, a physical space. So the only good side of COVID for our situation is we get more time to develop, but we want it to be in New York City. Um, that would be a nice epicenter for that. Um, so right now that's that's where that's where where we're at. Um, Why New York? Um, so it's yeah about like it's 30 minutes away from from where uh, from where I'm at, you know, in Connecticut, um, as well as just um, the need, the need. There are only, I think, two other racial trauma clinics in the country um, in there. And those are both in Kentucky. Um, so having a space that is dedicated uh, to healing racial trauma in ways that suit the black community, suit, uh, you know, different cultures and whatnot. And I couldn't think of a better place than, than New York city. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you well. And is there anything you would like any parting words for us? Ooh, any, any parting words? Um, uh, you know I what I would have liked I would have yeah. liked a, a story, an anecdote, a client of yours. I mean, obviously you wouldn't say who he is, but like a story that solidifies through the experience what this whole thing is about. Mm, interesting. Can you think of, of something? Think, yeah. Thinking of a client's story. I would say I, I got one. This guy is a, he's a good guy. Um, so this young man um, I worked with, he came in, racial trauma with with a lot of anger a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety and i truth be told i feel this is probably the laziest i've ever been healing someone because he healed himself okay so gradually what he came to recognize in his experiences was that he was already challenging systems he was already experiencing anger at, at white folks who were giving him uh, the racial trauma and the black folks who weren't listening. And he stuck to, he trusted his reality. And then in speaking to me, I just validated what he saw. I valid, he said, I, this is my experience. I reflected on my experience. I felt my emotions and this is what it is. And then me just validating his experience. Yes, that is your experience that then reduced the anxiety that allowed him to channel his anger in productive ways that were what he wanted to do. So if there's anything that you can take away, it's your experience is valid. You don't need someone with a PhD to tell you, you know, if you're healing racial trauma in the right way, uh, black folks who've been gaslit into believing uh, white experiences um, are more important than ours. And that is just not the case. Um, so, so follow your heart, follow your journey, um, seek professional help when you need to, of course, always. Um, but yeah, hold on to that experience. Trust yourself. Yeah, I like that. It's super uh, helpful and grounding. And it's it's good to, it's something that applies to everyone, no matter what, ultimately. Yeah. Your experience is your own yeah. and it is valid. Um, how do you say goodbye to your lovely partner? Now that you shared that you have a partner from Ethiopia, how do you say goodbye to her? Because however you say goodbye to her is how you're going to say goodbye to us. So yeah. watch out. <laughs> She's going to listen. Oh man. Oh, I never know how I'll get in trouble, but I just, I just will somehow find a way. Um, well, I, I would just, I would just say, say goodbye 
love you. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's it. Bye. I love, love my audience, Broderick. Yes. I do. I love everybody. That's uh, that. There's the ancient spiritual truths. It's it's the only way, right? Yes. Well, thank you. We love you back, and uh, that's it for now. Till well, we meet again. Bye. Bye. Wait, pedate, attend, retourne-moi. That all means. Wait a second. Not quite goodbye yet. Wanted to remind you to please write a review so that others can find this awesome podcast. Feel free to share it. Send in your topics. I love hearing from you guys. We are building a nice community of What the Fockery listeners. Uh, We have uh, Patreon as a great way to support. If you do decide to support on Patreon, what you will get, one of the cool things is you will get to watch the actual video version of most of these recordings on top of, you know, extra things. Uh, Facebook, we have a Facebook page. Come check us out. Come follow and interact, please. Instagram, where you can see the photos of what our uh, guests look like and uh, motivational and inspirational quotes on a daily. And uh, and I want to hear from you guys when I look, I'm looking for guests and certain topics. And I would love if you reached out a little more. I have a few ideas that came through uh, some of you guys. uh, And I have found some experts to come on or people in a certain lifestyle. So please do that. Uh, Like, share the whole bit, the whole kit and caboodle. Okay, now officially. Bye. (laughs) 